Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Orientis, CEO and co-founder of Staircase AI, a customer intelligence and analytics platform that's raised $5 million in funding. Ori, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett, and I'm excited to be here. No problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Israel. You know, my parents moved from the U.S., from Boston area to Israel when I was one years old. It was supposed to be for, you know, three years, ended up being, uh, you know, for a lot longer. So I grew up there. And then, um, you know, in Israel, after the high school, you go through the military service. So I did that for a few years and then went to engineering school, studied electrical engineering and spent some time afterwards in the semiconductor industry. So I worked for companies like IBM, LSI Logic, then Joined the startup world very quickly, kind of the mid-2000s. First startup, um, you know, was sold to Brocade. And then kind of did a transition into the SaaS world. And in 2019, I basically started kind of my journey to found Staircase AI. So one question we like to ask whenever we speak with someone who's served in the military is, what's the number one takeaway that you had from your time in the military? Wow, number one. I think it just makes you a little bit more realistic about life and, you know, in Israel, a military is, it can get tense at times, you know, almost everyone sees some form of action. And after that experience, you know, hopefully not, you know, in a negative way, you walk out with some lessons for life, camaraderie, you know, that's a really strong one with your, with your team, your, the soldiers that are with you. I think, you know, early on in life, learning that you can do things that you didn't really think you could do when you're 18, uh, it could be physical, it could be mental. And I chose to become an officer partly because I just didn't want to get too many orders. So I thought that if I become an officer, I can then give orders. But I always found out that there's always someone up, you know, above me. That's funny. Now, a few other questions we'd like to ask. And the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what founder or CEO do you admire the most? And what do you admire about them? Yeah. So, you know, it's a difficult question because I don't think I admire a single person. It's more like traits that I look at people and think, wow, those that's something that I want to adopt in my in my personal life. And there are a few of those. I think earlier on, kind of in the financial world, you know, hearing Warren Buffett's story about, you know, on one hand being so successful, but yet humble about it and kind of really sticking to kind of the same home, you know, the same car, even though, you know, he's a you know billionaire. So that's one aspect. An additional one, you know, if you think about musicians like Tom Petty, so if you think when you're forming a band, you're kind of like a, a founder, an entrepreneur. And, you know, if you look at Tom Petty's history, and I'm a big fan, and I was lucky to see his concert, one of the last concerts, you know, he fought the, the record companies at the time. And that was a battle, an uphill battle, and, and he really changed the industry. And then when I look at maybe in the tech world, you know, Jobs, which, you know, I assume we all know and, and hear a lot, but mostly about, you know, his ability and tenacity, uh, that intensity, but also that perfection around, you know, design that I think a lot about that, you know, when we have conversations about the design world. And then I know probably a lot are, you know, talking about, you know, Elon Musk and so on. But for me, um, there's one part of Elon Musk that I, I kind of look at, which is the first principles, you know, that idea of really looking at the core reason 
of a problem and trying to find a solution around it. So I don't think that there's any one individual as a whole. It's more like, you know, attributes or characteristics. What about books? And the way we like to frame this, and we we stole this from an author named Ryan Holiday, and it's it's called a quick book. So he defined a quick book as a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and, and really just how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? Yeah. So I think when I was a teenager, I was into sci-fi a lot. And I think 2001 was definitely kind of an eye-opener. I think a couple of things that came up, and, and I kind of think it's a little eerie and kind of relevant today with what's happening with AI. I think the evolutionary aspect that the story that's told there of like, you know, prehistoric man all the way through civilizations that travel through the galaxies, and then also how computers can evolve into a level of intelligence. And, you know, when I was growing up, the technology world was, you know, the personal computers, things like that were just starting to kind of emerge. And it was really uh, uh, an interesting way of looking at, at the world at the time. Later on in life, you know, I picked up some other books along the way. I think the if you think about like Malcolm Gladwell um, and even Kahneman about the thinking fast, thinking slow. So those concepts of like that humans are, you know, we're kind of hackable or like, you know, there's just these traits that are really interesting and kind of counterintuitive. Those are, are really interesting to me. Now let's switch gears and let's dive deeper into the company. So Staircase AI, can you give us the quick kind of elevator pitch of what the company does? Yeah. So Staircase, you know, we're at the forefront of what we call artificial customer intelligence. And we're on a mission to empower customer facing leaders to boost retention, upsell and conversion with the power of AI. So we're an AI first company. And the way we do it is we examine millions of customer interactions. So think of any kind of engagement, if it's textual, a voice, any data that you have in your system. And we look at a customer as a holistic, and we're talking here B2B, as a holistic kind of engagement of two networks of, of people, the customer and the vendor. And our AI automatically forecasts uh, things like risk, you know, churn, reveals concealed growth potential, and helps leaders manage the organization and really, you know, know what's happening. What are like the indicators that someone is going to churn, just for like an example there? Yeah, so they're the obvious ones, which are, you know, deteriorating sentiment, um, a lot of issues, but sometimes it could be something more subtle, like a change, you know, in the um, in the personas, uh, you know, like an organizational change or maybe some budget changes or you lost the champion. So it, it could be that, you know, there's great adoption of a product. And so churn can be very surprising in that, in that respect. And what you need to do is you need to look at a lot of different parameters simultaneously. And then the forecasting, you know, it's kind of limited in time. So I always like to think about it as like, like weather, right? So like, you know, we can probably forecast the weather maybe a couple of weeks in advance, maybe a little bit more. And churn is kind of like that. It's complex. Of course, you might have, you know, a number of really kind of bad incidents with a customer. Think of like, you know, crashes, support, issues like that. But, you know, you might still be able to save the customer. So those are kind of the, the main indicators. I think to, to fight churn, we put together different kinds of, of operating methods, right? So one is to make sure, you know, you're responding quickly enough. Two is to make sure that, you know, the customer is constantly seeing value and customer in B2B is not one person. That's the challenge. You really need to kind of take a group of people, individuals from different, you know, aspects of the hierarchy and make sure that each and one of them sees value. It's enough that one of them may not so that the time of renewal, um, you know, you might lose that contract. And can you take us back to 2020 when the, the company was first starting? What was it about this problem that made you say, yep, that's it. This is the problem that I want to solve. 
Yeah, so it's an interesting uh, journey that I had. I, I led product for about two years in a mid-sized SaaS company called Kenshu, now rebranded as Sky, and then was asked by the CEO to take over the post-sales or the customer success organization. And that was about 150 people overseeing close to $100 million of ARR, global team. And we were hitting some churn at the time, some challenges. And I remember stepping into the role, this is 2018, and I had, you know, the best tech stack you can imagine. And I was just really challenged in understanding what's happening. So basic questions like, you know, what is, you know, the health of a customer? Do we have the right engagement? Are we talking to the right people? Where's the team spending the time? And, you know, there were a lot of systems at record, but they all relied on the fact that people were going to report, you know, into them. And everyone was really busy. So there was no real reporting uh, happening. And I realized it wasn't, you know, only the culture of our company, but a lot of companies were struggling with that. And it just started to think about different ways in which I could get a clear kind of intelligence view of what's happening. And that was kind of the beginning of, of Staircase. What about first customers? Yeah, you know, I'm guessing that maybe that former employer of yours was the first customer, but outside of that, who were some of those first customers or not, not who they were, but how did you land them specifically? You know, getting people to pay you money when you're a new startup is never easy. So how did you manage to pull that off? Yeah. So my co-founder, Lior, and I, we kind of reached out to our network at first. And you're right. You know, Kenshu Sky was one of our first design partners. And when you're a startup at the early days, you have to rely on your network because sometimes your idea sounds a little bit crazy. And think two years ago, AI, a lot of people kind of looked at us like, oh, it doesn't really work, you know, or it's not accurate or there are a lot of false alarms and how are you going to do it? And are we going to give you access to our data? So there are a lot of questions, a lot of challenges. And that's where you'd have to bridge, I think, those challenges with a relationship, right? So when you have a strong relationship and people know you, they'll feel confident to kind of take a risk and on one hand, help you. On the other hand, there has to be something in it for them. So they have to have a problem. So it was mostly our close network or our, the network of our network, you know, birth relationships. And those were like at beginning, just design partners. And then after, you know, about three months or so on, we got a little courageous and said, okay, yeah, are you willing to pay for this? <laughs> and because um, the challenge with the design partner is that they don't have to pay anything. The real test, and I think that this is something that, you know, looking forward, the real test is when you have to have someone pay for something. Can you give us an idea of growth that you're seeing today and just any numbers or metrics that you can share? Yeah. So the interesting thing that has happened, I think over the past six months is obviously the introduction of, you know, tools like ChatGPT and generative AI. And that has actually done, you know, wonders for us because it's basically boosted on an individual level, the ability to really understand how AI operates and that it actually works. As I said, you know, earlier in the day when we would, you know, say, hey, we're doing sentiment analysis with AI, we're looking at engagement with AI, we're, you know, analyzing relationships. People are like looking at us like, you know, we're, we just fell off a tree. But I think today it kind of become realistic to most consumers. And then what you experience as a consumer you can also take to your business you know, world. So we're seeing a lot of interest because now a lot of companies have an agenda to introduce AI into their sales, post-sales, and various other aspects of their operations. And so we get you know, questions like, um, hey, you know, we, we want to use AI. We're just not really sure where, how, what. So we're seeing you know, uh, quarter over quarter, we're seeing you know, 40 to 50% growth right now. You know, we are seeing a lot of interest. The pipeline is very big and also bigger companies. And I think it's just a very exciting time to disrupt. Yeah, I can see that from like the positive case when your know, chat GPT came out, it really entered into the mainstream and that probably helped a lot. But 
Is there a negative side there as well, where there's just a lot of noise and a lot of buzz and, and perhaps maybe it's a bit hard to stand out in all of that noise? Are you dealing with that at all? Absolutely. So I think one is there's a lot of, I think, cynicism or perhaps, you know, are you really AI or are you just using chat GPT? You know what I mean? And we've been deep in the world of data and AI for the past two and a half years. So there's a little bit of convincing uh, if it's on the investor side or if it's on, you know, the customer side that we're not just using chat GPT out of the box, but we actually have a serious kind of platform. And the way we explain that is, you know, that really, and then I think I just wrote a post about that, but, you know, LLMs are amazing, but they definitely rely on the data and, you know, providing data to LLMs, especially in the B2B world is not a simple task. And the more channels and the more omni-channel approach you are, you know, providing the LLMs becomes more difficult. So definitely there is that hype. There's a lot of noise. So people don't necessarily know, you know, how to differentiate between different products. But I think that I'm seeing right now kind of a little bit of the noise kind of, you know, abate a bit. And as we gather more success stories than the kind of the network effect in the industry, so customer referrals and things like that are definitely giving prospects and new customers the confidence to engage with us. And I was spending some time on your website earlier and I saw the the big call to action there to get a free churn analysis, which is a, a very, very good marketing tactic. Can you talk to us about what that does exactly and where that data is coming from and, and how it really pulls that data and does that analysis? Yeah. So that's a fascinating aspect of our platform. So the way it works is, let's say, you know, you had an unfortunate cut churn, so you lost a customer. What we would do is we would run kind of like a, a proof of concept where we would connect to a certain number of your communication channels. For example, it could be, let's say your email system, you know, it could be a support tickets. Maybe we would pull in some transcripts from calls. And if you have any other analytics signals like product usage and so on, and then that's pretty much it. That's what we need from you. We will then take it from there. We'll pull historical data and do an, an analysis that will look at certain dimensions of the interaction or engagement. And then we'll be able to tell you a story. So for example, we had a prospect that then converted to a customer. We had them tell us about a churn of a you know large you know six-figure customer. And when we analyzed it in the system, we saw uh, four weeks back, we saw a number of incidents. We saw the account manager change twice over a four month period, we saw the champion or, you know, the counterpart, the decision maker on the other side, lose kind of interest or go dark on the new account manager. So we saw, you know, several outreaches Then we saw some negative sentiment and support issues with another aspect of the customer. So all that together, when the renewal came led to an unfortunate outcome where decision maker was not engaged because, you know, account manager changed and they weren't able to create a relationship. Support wasn't able to deliver and solve a problem. And just overall sentiment from the customer side was not there. Now, if this had been, you know, if you could use staircase in real time, you know, somewhere along this journey, you know, we would raise a flag and say, somebody needs to step up here, step in, maybe on an executive level or something like that and reset this whole incident. Can you paint a picture for us of, of what it's like right now to be a customer success leader at a SaaS company? It's a lot of responsibility. It always has been. It's one of the most difficult jobs out there. You know, in most SaaS companies, especially after the early growth stage, most of the revenue is coming from, you know, the existing customer base. And that job of making sure that the customers are seeing the value and are going to renew and expand has a lot, a lot of importance and weight over the whole entire organization. So 
there's a lot of firefighting. And right now there's a lot of negotiating because everyone is, you know, in this macro climate, customers are basically looking for discounts if they're, you know, still interested in renewing. They are challenging value on a constant basis. That means they have to explain internally to their organizations why they need to buy a certain tool or service. And then they sometimes have to go back to the customer success organization and say, listen, we need this and this. Otherwise, we can't, you know, continue our relationship. There's a lot of competition out there. You know, we talked about generative AI, but there are a lot of tools that are coming out and that is causing a lot of friction on a product level. So uh, customer success, you know, that job is a very multifaceted, right? You have to understand human relationships and you have to be really good at that. You have to be able to understand the product and the service around it that you're selling. You have to be kind of an expert in that. Otherwise, you know, the customer doesn't, you know, really value you. And you have to be able to maneuver your organization internally to adapt and change to any signals you're seeing out there in the field. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Let's talk a little bit about market categories now. So when I introduced you, I introduced you as a customer intelligence and analytics platform. I think I pulled that maybe somewhere from LinkedIn. Is that the category or what is the market category or how do you think about market category today? Yeah, that definitely, we look at the revenue intelligence category, but with a focus on the customer and, you know, versus sales. So post-sales world. So in some ways it is a new category. There've been a category of tools and the customer success and support, but there's been a lack of intelligence. And as I told my personal story, you know, when I was leading, you know, a customer success or post-sales organization, I lacked that intelligence. And in the sales world, there's some equivalence to that, you know, forecasting tools and so on. In the post-sale world, there are some challenges that have yet to to be overcome. And part of it is because it's a, a more complex problem to solve, right? The post-sale world is very noisy. You have a lot of signals, you have a lot of people interacting, you have history, you have product experience and so on and so forth. So the category is a relatively you know new one emerging, I would say, but with what's happening right now and the trend of sales intelligence, data, and you know intelligence in general, analytics, it's just naturally forming. And if you think of the future, I think everyone envisions in the future a place where you have the sentient kind of system that is constantly analyzing every signal possible to help you work with your customers and your prospects. In terms of go-to-market, I'm sure there's been a, a couple of challenges along the way, but if we had to pick one challenge that you faced so far and you've you know, largely overcome, what would that challenge be and how'd you overcome it? So I think an interesting experiment we went through as a startup is we started PLG last year and realized very quickly that that's not you know working for us. And we were kind of mesmerized by the idea of you know the, the whole PLG you know approach. But about a few weeks into it, we saw traction. That means we had signups and all that good stuff that you measure PLG. But we realized that we were hitting a wall. And part of it was, you know, by analyzing it really carefully, we're twofold. One is we access kind of sensitive data. And in order to spread it in an organization, we have to go through security and privacy. And that, you know, is kind of a blocker for the PLG flow. The second was that, you know, our buyer is typically a high level manager. And those folks don't always go around signing up for products and services, you know, just off the web. You know, they're very busy. 
And we basically had to kind of shut that down, shift to a more kind of enterprise uh, sales approach. And, and then, you know, and that's kind of how we've done that. So Q4 was quite a challenging quarter for us because we had to really kind of turn our whole go-to-market, both messaging, approach, build kind of our upper funnel in Q1. And now in Q2 and, and Q3, we're actually seeing it starting to work. We're seeing, you know, strong demand. We're talking to the right people. The ACVs are, are much larger. And, you know, there's a process in place that can sometimes take, you know, a few months to close a deal, but it's worth it. I feel like more and more founders and more and more companies are going to share that experience over the coming months where, you know, they they got kind of bit by the PLG bug a few years ago because that's all you could read everywhere, right? Everywhere on LinkedIn, <laughs> all over the media, investors, all over Twitter, everyone was talking about PLG as, you know, kind of the savior. And I think a lot of companies kind of moved into that because the benefits just sound insane when you really see them listed out. But I think that just for a lot of companies, it, it hasn't worked out as they anticipated. So I don't think you're alone there in having those uh, PLG challenges. Yeah, I actually, I 100% agree. I think we were all, it was almost like the holy grail PLG, right? And and if you can't build PLG, then there's something wrong. But I must say that, you know, when you're kind of leading a startup and one of our principles is really fail fast. It's not about not failing. And that's a, a tough one for your ego because we all, you know, don't like to fail. You know, a lot of us are A types and, you know, we just want it to succeed. But it's it's more important to look really clearly at the data in front of you and say, hey, this is not working. It, nobody's to blame here, but we really need to change course quickly. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, we're successful from a cultural perspective, you know, at Staircase is that it's okay to fail. But if it is a failure, you know, we got to raise that flag early. So PLG was definitely in that respect, you know, not a success. We learned a lot from it and it enabled us to kind of pivot into a direct sales enterprise approach that we know and feel is the right fit uh, right now. How fast did you fail there? Are we talking like you, you know, had the idea, you rolled it out, then it was, you know, six months later, or was it three months later? What was that like general time frame? It was more like two months. Because it, it took a while, and at the beginning, you don't know if the PLG is not where you're doing something wrong in the PLG, you know, if the product's not right or something like that. So we experimented with that, but we also looked at the type of personas that were signing up, and we saw very quickly that we're not, you know, getting any kind of managerial level signups. So that was a red flag. So we thought maybe it was the messaging. So we played around with that. And then we just got to a conclusion that maybe this is not working, partly because we also, again, from like a security and privacy perspective. So one of the things about Staircase is the fact that, you know, we get to share a lot of the data internally, right? So I get to see your emails, you get to see mine, I get to see tickets of the organization. So that sharing aspect is really important for us to be able to provide value. So an individual kind of value proposition is great for PLG, but when you need kind of a company-wide or an organization-wide, you know, data sharing approach, it's very hard to spread in an organization like that. That makes a lot of sense. Now, let's just imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? Wow. I think just bring talent into areas that, you know, you're not familiar, you know, early on as possible. I think I was both uh, Leo or my co-founder and I, we were trying to cover as much ground and, you know, we had really strong technical and product, you know, a knowledge and maybe some areas of the go to market, marketing, you know, finance, uh, all that. It was a lot of learning kind of, you know, on the job, quote unquote. I read a lot of books, you know, I talked to a lot of friends and so on and so forth. But if, you know, we brought in perhaps another individual, if she or he were someone who had that experience, I think it would have shortened the curve 
You see, because a startup is really all about time, right? The minute you get that funding, your clock is ticking and you need to show results quickly. So it's really to go in with whatever, you know, talent, you know, you can acquire as early possible. I will say that when we started off, it was very, very competitive. It was kind of right, kind of the midst of Corona, COVID and startups were flourishing. Funding was everywhere and it was very hard to get really good talent. But I think that would be one thing, you know, expand, maybe not the founder team necessarily, but that also I'm totally open to that. But the managerial team early on, because, you know, a group, a strong group with experience can can accelerate. When I was playing around on the site earlier as well, I you know, I, I did notice that the messaging is really strong. The copy is really clear. I you know, went through the resources. You're running all of the right tactics. How long did it take you to you know, really get the marketing dialed in like that? Because now when I look at it, it looks great. You know, was it like that from day one or how long did it take to get to this point? No, nothing's like this in day one. No, we have a great team in general. I think in every facet, we're a small team. Uh, we're 10 people and every person, you know, is just amazing. And so is our, you know, head of marketing. And, you know, we just did a lot of experimentation, a lot of analytics. That means that the approach is very data-driven. And I know, you know, people say that ad nauseum these days, but really sometimes, you know, I don't even want to look at the data, but I'm forced to. So there was a lot of A-B testing, a lot of thinking, a lot of testing, of trying, you know, and sometimes I'm impatient. Like, I'll be like, no, we got to change the, you know, the messaging because we're not seeing any traction. And, you know, and, and marketing or sales will say, okay, listen, give it like two weeks or three weeks and so on. So there's this give and take discussion that's constantly going on. And the thing is that you don't, you're not in a bubble, right? There's a macro environment around you. When we started off, you know, things were great, you know, in the macro end of last year, things started to look pretty bad and that, you know, the messaging had to adapt and we were adapting, you know, there's so many variables that are changing. It was, you know, at times it was a little overwhelming, right? The product was changing from PLG to enterprise. You know, we were rebuilding our funnel. We were changing features in the product because, you know, PLG product is different than an enterprise product. The core was obviously the same. So it was quite a journey. And to be honest, I don't know if, you know, the messaging is perfect right now. Like right now we're still exchanging, you know, new ideas about messaging, you know, how to expand and, and how to talk to, you know, new verticals and, and new, so it, it never ends. Yeah. I think that's consistent with everyone that I've talked to. The messaging is never done. You know, it, it changes every three months, every six months, you know, whatever it is, it, it's always evolving as the, the market changes. So that makes a lot of sense. Now, final question for you. Let's zoom out into the future. So let's go maybe three to five years from today. Can you just paint a picture for us? What is that high level vision and that big picture vision that you're building? Yeah, I say to folks, you know, imagine imagine a world in three to five years where you don't have to log anything manually. You don't have to you know, kind of sit with some system of record and and kind of just everything is kind of counted for, tested, analyzed for you. I see ourselves as kind of in the forefront of what we call this artificial customer intelligence. So it's kind of like a sentient, I would say, augmenting people. And, you know, it's a platform and it can not only provide intelligence and insights, but it can also provide action and to some degree, maybe mimic people, but not taking, you know, not in a scary way, like not taking away jobs or things like that, but just making us more efficient in our work. Amazing. Well, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders listening in want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? So yeah, please follow us on uh, on LinkedIn, on Staircase AI, and then also we have our various blogs. And also feel free to reach out to me, you know, typically on LinkedIn. And yeah, I'm excited to interact with everyone and anyone. And yeah, I wish everyone out there, you know, good luck. These are challenging times, but exciting ones too.
Totally agree. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Really enjoyed this. And I know the audience is going to as well. Thanks a lot, Brett. It's great being here. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 